Okay, everybody, welcome to the Forward Together podcast. We might sound a wee bit different today because for the first time in a very long time, Paul and I are in the same room, way at the other side of the same room, I must say. Um, we're well socially distanced. So, Paul, how's the form? Our last podcast? Yeah, and, and it's been lovely walking over here so they'll actually, you know, see someone rather than just listen to the dog. <laughs> we don't have to worry about the dog today. That's right. <laughs> so, Paul, for the 18th and final um, interview of this series of the Forward Together podcast. Who do we have? We have the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Peter Hayne. Uh, he was a senior minister under Tony Blair, and uh, we will hear him giving forthright views on the state of politics in Northern Ireland and the role of the British government. Yeah, aye. I think he's, he's pretty forthright, all right. And I think pretty critical of the success of Conservative governments about their hands-off approach when it comes to dealing with here? Yeah, Julian Smith gets a buy, mm-hmm. but in terms of all the other Secretaries of State for Northern Ireland and the Conservative leaders, and in particular the leadership of Boris Johnson and David Cameron and Theresa May, he is extremely critical. Yeah, he's saying you, to be successful here, you have to be here, you have to be hands-on, you have to be engaging. But I think part of the challenge too that he flags up as an honest broker and if you align yourself with one side of the political conversation here you're not seen as such and that's what marked julian smith out as being different because he took the time he spoke to all the parties he didn't seem to be particularly aligned with one interest group but david cameron was in an electoral alliance with the Ulster Unionist party and subsequently theresa may uh, was uh, very close to the dup in uh, a whipping arrangement with the dup uh, and subsequently, Boris Johnson has been trying to make sure that he is closely associated with the DUP. And the view of Peter Hayne is that this undermines the role both of the Prime Minister and also the Secretary of State. And as we all hear, he also thinks that Prime Ministers just didn't put the time in. Yeah. It's no use simply giving the role to the Secretary of State, uh, who have had serious difficulties in getting the job done. But actually, the Prime Ministers have to recognise that they are Prime Minister of Northern Ireland under the current constitutional arrangements and have to be here, have to be here for the for the duration, not simply flitting in and out. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that the local political leadership um, don't aren't must by Peter Rehler and the conversation that he's having around their lack of real leadership, I think, would be fair to say. He, he has hopes for Geoffrey Donaldson, but mm. he is extremely critical of Arlene Foster, as we'll hear in a few minutes. Yeah, aye. And I think he's particularly critical of where people stand. Just, you're going to have to learn to love with one another and govern this place, because these are your partners, like it or not, I think is kind of where he was coming from too. And, and it's an example to society as a whole, isn't yeah. it? You know, if our political leaders can't actually get round the table and treat each other like adults, then what hope is there for a wider society? Yeah. Okay, well, let's hear the conversation with Peter and I. Thanks very much for doing this. There's a lot of focus on the issue around uh, the legacy proposals from Brandon Lewis and the UK government and the issues of prosecutions, investigations, inquests. But uh, there's more broadly, there's a, a legacy of political distrust um, of the difficulties around the parties getting over the past in order to work together. I mean, as, as a former Secretary of State, what's your view about the best way to encourage and support the the parties to work together and to to move beyond that level of distrust 
first of all, on the role of the Secretary of State and the Prime Minister, you have to be hands-on. I think David Cameron and his successors made a basic error in thinking that the job was done when they took office in 2010. And he did not, and nor did Theresa May, and certainly not Boris Johnson, have the constant focus that Northern Ireland needs, building relationships with all the key political leaders and others, and being there not on a fly-in, fly-out basis or the odd Zoom call for half an hour here and there, but actually constantly engaged. And the unravelling of Stormont and some of the difficulties that have arisen since, including over the protocol, are a result of that basically neglect, I'm afraid, to be blunt about it, that there has been. I'm not saying that uh, Tory secretaries of state weren't busy uh, or weren't, uh, you know, acting in good faith, but they didn't display the hands-on approach. And nor did the Prime Minister, either Cameron or May or certainly Boris Johnson, have that laser-like focus on Northern Ireland. So that's the first point I'd make. And the second is that you've got to be an honest broker. And that hasn't been the case. Basically, from the time that David Cameron formed an alliance for the 2010 general election with the Ulster Unionist Party, and you'll remember one of their most notable MPs, Sylvia Herman, refused to go along with that and stood and won as an independent. From that moment on, the Conservatives aligned themselves as a government not simply as a party, but as a government with one side of the divide in Northern Ireland. And you have to be an honest broker. As Secretary of State, I could not have helped bring those improbable uh, uh, first and deputy first ministers together of Ian Paisley Sr. and Martin McGuinness, given their backgrounds and their failure even to exchange hello to each other before 2007 when they shared power together in that self-government. I could not have done that had I not been treated as an honest broker by both sides and trusted to carry messages between the two because they weren't communicating directly. And the same for Tony Blair. So that is the two big problems about the recent years. I don't make a party point here because I wish all my successes as Secretary of State um, well, and I want to see them succeed. And the reason they largely haven't succeeded in the last 10, 11 years is because of that failure to be honest brokers and to be really hands-on um, as opposed to the odd fly-in, fly-out uh, meeting or one or two of them. So I, I start with that. If I, if, before, you before, uh, Peter, whole... before you go on to the next point, if I could just maybe challenge you on two aspects of that. Firstly, I think there's a sense in Northern Ireland that Julian Smith was different from that and shouldn't perhaps be characterised in the same way as the other secretaries of state. And the second thing is that one, to be party political about it, the same criticism surely could be made of Gordon Brown, that he wasn't as hands-on perhaps because of the global financial crash as Tony Blair had been and enabling you as, uh, as secretary of state. Well, to be fair, Gordon Brown did, with Sean Woodward, get the thorny issue of devolution of policing and justice achieved. And that uh, was, it, it was a crisis point. It was a bit of unfinished business. 
you'll remember that when Sinn Féin signed up to support the rule of law and policing and the system of justice that they'd previously been at bitter odds with, it had to be on the basis of being devolved from the British government to Northern Ireland's self-government. But that hadn't been, that process hadn't been completed and there were still a lot of sticky issues. So, yes, Gordon Brown was focused on the global financial crisis, rightly, because it had the capacity to sweep uh, everything that we know uh, away in that period of 2008-2009. But he still had time to work with Sean Woodward, my direct successor, to achieve that very important objective. I do, on Conservative Secretary of State, I do, and you're quite right to pull me up on that, I do accept Julian Smith on that general criticism because he was in the same mould as I'd like to think I was, as my predecessors under Tony Blair were, and my successor under Sean Woodward, uh, under Gordon Brown, Sean Woodward was. And it's not an accident, it's not a coincidence that Julian Smith, in his short time as Secretary of State, regrettably short time, it was a big uh, shame uh, uh, that he was then moved out of government by Boris Johnson because he didn't fit the, the Dominic Cummins, Boris Johnson, stereotype of, uh, of a cabinet minister, but he was able to get Stormont back up and running. He was able to make progress on other issues uh, which had eluded his predecessors. So uh, I think he was in exactly that mould of hands-on, honest broker and seen as such and trusted as such. I'm sorry, Pete, I interrupted you before and you were about to say, I think about how the political parties here need to adjust to work together more effectively. It took a lot of very hard work to achieve what nobody thought would be possible or only a handful of people, including myself, thought might be possible to bring Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness together, to bring the DUP into government with its bitter blood enemies, uh, Sinn Féin. And yet we achieved that. And that, that was built on quite, uh, on quite um, difficult foundations, but nevertheless, there was a glue that held together. Now, what I think has happened since, and of course Ian Paisley was somewhat ignominiously uh, ushered from office by his own party, uh, quite prematurely in my view, uh, but that nevertheless happened, is there was a continued relationship under Peter Robinson, who played a very proactive and behind-the-scenes role in the road to get to 2007 self-government settlement. Uh, but he and Peter and Martin McGuinness didn't have quite the same chemistry as Ian Paisley, but nevertheless, they, they bumped along. But frankly, after that, either because Arlene Foster did not enjoy the full confidence of her MPs and MLAs and the party at large in the way that Peter Robinson did and Ian Paisley, of course, who towered over the party did. Um, I, I'm not sure, but that may have been a factor. But she didn't have seemed to have the ability or the self-confidence or the leadership caliber to actually lead from the front and not always do her party's bidding in a kind of lapdog fashion. And that started to deteriorate. Um, and the relationship between her and Martin McGuinness deteriorated. 
there may have been faults on both sides. I'm not necessarily going to get into the detail of that. But to make um, Northern Ireland's very difficult politics work, you have to have leaders who prepare to lead from the front. Now, I think Geoffrey Donaldson, as the DUP's leader, has that potential. He is a strong politician who's been around the course a number of times. He was involved, uh, intimately involved in the negotiations that led to the 2007 settlement. He has seen it all and done most of it. And I think he could be the kind of leader for the DUP, because the DUP is critical to this, that instead of moving backwards and sliding backwards, actually seeks to move forwards and um, rebuild relationships in which Sinn Féin are not seen as the devil incarnate, but um, are governing parties. You don't have to agree or like anybody personally or respect their history or uh, tick every box of what they've done in the past. Nevertheless, to be able to work together. And that, that requires a different mindset from Northern Ireland's leading politicians. And that hasn't been there for the last... Um, five to 10 years. So uh, I, I think that um, that is a prerequisite for moving forward is in, in, a, in a, and I don't want to mean this in a patronizing way, but Northern Ireland's politicians have to decide whether they are focused on the future or trapped by the past. And too many of them are still trapped by the past. And of course, there's a lot of fear on the unionist side as to where this all might be leading. But, you know, all the parties face their, their difficulties. I mean, Sinn Féin have constant uh, sniping from the dissidents uh, who still have traction and an ability to, to undermine um, the peaceful course that Sinn Féin have uh, determined upon and delivered upon now since uh, 2007, certainly, and going back before that. So every party leader has his or her um, hinterland and membership and grassroots to worry about, and they should do so, otherwise they won't survive as party leaders. But in the end, you've got to decide whether, as a leader, you're practicing leadership or followership. And not enough Northern Ireland, of Northern Ireland's leaders uh, are, doing, are performing leadership uh, as opposed to followership. And until they decide they are going to do that, then we'll continuously be trapped in this uh, blamond of, of Northern Ireland's politics that, that shifts, you know, sh shifts its shape, but basically doesn't um, move forward. Over the last two weeks, I've interviewed both Michelle O'Neill and Geoffrey Donaldson. And Michelle made the point that the experience of the COVID pandemic showed that government could work and that the parties could work together. Geoffrey, on the other hand, uh, pointed to issues about the fact that it seemed to me that basically the DUP can't get beyond the troubles in the sense that he says that while he recognises the current leadership of Sinn Féin uh, were not involved in troubles events, that by memorialising and also by the activities around the Bobby Story funeral, it makes it very difficult for unionists to engage fully with people in Sinn Féin. I mean, that seems to undermine or repudiate your, your suggestion that actually we've got a leadership that can move beyond that past. Well, we have to see. Uh, I mean, Geoffrey Donaldson's leadership is in its early, very early stages uh, of, of weeks. 
rather than months or certainly years. So let's see. Uh, and clearly, he has his own constituency to um, to, to, to relate to. Uh, but um, what has happened to the DUP is quite instructive. I mean, they've lost support under the previous leadership prior to Jeffrey Donaldson. They've lost support both to their right, to the traditional Ulster Unionists, and to their left, to the to the Alliance Party. And in the end, if you don't, if, if the DUP doesn't see itself as governing for all unionists, as it seemed to be doing um, for a while in, in years gone past, but simply for a narrow, very hard line version of unionism, well, it can't in the end feed that hard line beast sufficient meat because it'll always demand more. And if you are going to be in government at all with other parties, and that obviously means Sinn Féin principally, then you're going to have to have a bit of give and take and a bit of compromise. And that's what the people of Northern Ireland want. They don't want the old politics to be smothering everything and uh, gridlocking everything. Because Northern Ireland's politics is gridlocked. That's the truth. Whether it's dealing with victims or whether it's dealing with legacy issues, but actually also with dealing with the here and now, the issues, the consequences of Brexit in, in the fallout through the Irish Protocol and the de facto border across the Irish Sea, which is understandably an anathema to unionists, or whether it's the chronic condition of the National Health Service or the um, challenges within schools to, 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 uh, to, imp to improve standards, which, aside from the grammar school at the top, are pretty abysmal, frankly. Um, and, 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 there and, are bread and butter issues with, which Northern Ireland's politics neglect and have neglected uh, you know, at, at, their, at their peril, because ultimately the people will take revenge on them if they're not seen to be delivering on these basic issues of health and education and uh, jobs and housing and so on, and they aren't. And, and you're right, Peter, that is the acid test of politics today, isn't it? In particular, around the health service reform, we have the, the longest waiting list, the long, longest waiting times anywhere in the UK, uh, really uh, very poor quality outcomes for many people. And we've got the Bengoa report suggesting a way forward. And the question is, I suppose, to an extent, the extent to, extent to which the leaders of the parties can actually exert discipline over their own members to enable the type of reform which involves not necessarily closing hospitals, but at least reshaping them to deliver different services, to centralise the delivery of acute services, how confident can we be that the political leaders can actually lead to enable a consensus behind Bengoa and not have localised um, rejection of that in order to keep open a particular hospital here and there? Well, none of us know, and it is the acid test. In the end, if you need an urgent operation, it doesn't matter what your politics is, what your religion is, what your allegiances are, if any, politically, what matters is you get your health needs seen to efficiently uh, under the National Health Service, and that hasn't been happening. And if the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Northern Ireland Executive fail to rise to that challenge, as they have, they've failed abysmally, they will pay the price, and they'll pay the price rightly, because in the end, 
what matters to the average citizen in Northern Ireland is not who they vote for or what their history is or where their community came from in decades gone by and the troubles and, and the rest of it. What matters is whether their children can get a have a decent school and in the case of the health service, whether their health needs for themselves, for their parents, for their relatives and for their kids and their communities are, are met. And so I, I think it's a big test. And so long as Northern Ireland's politicians are focused on, you know, who's on what board and is it the right balance and who's compromising with somebody across the historic divide, instead of focusing on reforming these services to make sure they deliver what people want, because I found that the Secretary of State, that the whole of the public services, and I, as, as, as a Secretary of State uh, responsible under direct rule for running all of these, these the whole of the whole of the, the whole of Northern Ireland and all its different services, you know, I, I found a lot of sclerosis, a lot of refusal to reform, a lot of attitudes of can't do rather than can do in the civil service. It's a very fine and dedicated civil service, but also a lot of dead wood because it hadn't been led properly at a ministerial level for a generation, if not longer. Uh, and because of the state of Northern Ireland's politics or the non-existent state of the politics. And my predecessor's Secretary of State didn't want to interfere in that for, for the sake of upsetting the, um, the party balance uh, and losing focus on the peace process. Well, I did both because I thought they were in a really bad state, um, the health service included. And I, I, I tried to reform that in the period I was there and begun that process. But it required... Um, you know, breaking a few eggs and knocking heads together. And Northern Ireland politicians are reluctant to do that because of their historic sectarian divisions. But those don't matter a damn if you can't get your hip replaced or you can't get a proper um, treatment under COVID or you, you can't get um, your child's uh, needs met uh, that are crucial to their future well-being. But uh, we have advantages in health service reform in the sense that I've now interviewed five party leaders, the five parties in government, and every leader is supportive in principle of the Bangor reforms. The situation is different, though, with reforming schooling because the first four leaders, um, the Ulster uh, Unis, the Alliance Party, SDLP and Sinn Féin, all support reform, fundamental reform of the schooling system. But when I spoke to Geoffrey Donaldson last week, he is very committed to retaining the grammar school system, uh, very committed to selection, uh, very uh, committed to shared schooling, not integrated schooling. There isn't a consensus when it comes to educational reform. Yes, I, I accept that. And the DUP obviously has to make its mind up whether it's going to go with a consensus or stand out on its own. The problem that the DUP faces as a party is you have very good schools at the top. Uh, the grammar schools are some of the best in the United Kingdom and world class in some respects. But the rest of the system is failing the majority of school pupils and the more, ultimately the majority of children. Now that cannot be a legacy which the DUP wants hung around its neck. So 
And that's a question it's going to have to confront. Uh, and yes, you're right, it, it, it has to confront that question as a party. Now, there are different solutions to that. Um, I, I, uh, I, I introduced, I, I, I banned academic selection. Uh, I, although that had to be retreated from in, in the settlement. And I made sure that um, resources and a focus was was on the non-grammar school sector, which is which is has been failing, and that means the vast majority of Northern Ireland's youngsters. The question, I suppose, that follows from that, Peter, is whether citizens' assemblies can help shift that. Uh, create a, a more of a momentum towards reform um, and uh, on that there does seem to be a, a broader agreement around the use of citizens assemblies just how they're used and for what may be different I mean it's in new decade new approach uh, Jeffrey Donaldson along with the other leaders supports the use of citizens assemblies I mean how, to what extent do you think they can uh, unlock the political system in Northern Ireland well, they could bring a different dynamic because they will bring in the voices of civil society and the average citizen who chooses to participate, but particularly civil society, which has a different stance from the parties, uh, often gridlocked as they are between each other. I mean, you take you, you take on on the victims issue uh, without going into that in detail. I just mentioned the wave trauma group, and there are other victims groups, there are many other ones. But what is notable about that group is that they operate in a non-sectarian way. They don't, um, they represent people from all sides uh, who were severely injured during the troubles. And they've done it very um, successfully. And, and I think there are civil society groups who, whether it's health or education or housing or um, the, the chronic lack of opportunities in loyalist communities for, for young people to, to make their way in the world. Um, some of the most lowest skills in those communities of anywhere in Europe, let alone in Northern Ireland or the UK. Uh, and, and that can't be right. I mean, this is leaving deindustrialized communities um, uh, in in. Who, who've been loyalist in their allegiance. And so if you get civil society involved in citizens' assemblies, um, they, that can be very productive. It's a question whether and their leaders will allow those uh, civil society groups to breathe and the room within those assemblies to, to, to take decisions the parties will act upon as opposed to go back into their old sectarian enclaves and of course it does fill the gap that is left by the fact that the civic forum hasn't uh, met for many many years uh, in breach of the principles of the good friday agreement yes it does and you know i wish that initiative if it if it if it takes off uh, the very best because it could breathe new new life into northern ireland's gridlocked um, failing politics but, but I be a lesson for every party leader, every party leader, and I make no excuses, but principally um, the DUP and Sinn Féin, that if this form of self-government, with all its imperfections, uh, 
they will pay the price as parties. Northern Ireland, yes, will pay the price, as it is has paid now for a number of years. Uh, the period after 2007 accepted because that was pretty successful. Um, but they will pay the price, because, as the DUP has already started to pay the price electorally. Ultimately, Northern Ireland's politics is shifting in a way that, uh, and, and young people are seeing their political allegiances in a much more fluid way. It's, it's on the margins so far, but I think it's interesting the way the alliance vote has increased. I think it's interesting the way the SDLP has come back and um, the way the DUP has declined. The margins are not huge, but they are there. And they are a portent possibly of things to come if DUP in particular, but Sinn Féin as well, don't find a way of moving together uh, to focus on the issues of that are bedeviling every administration in every part of the world, uh, of giving young people opportunities, of fixing health service, of dealing with job insecurity uh, in, in underglow, all of these challenges. These are the bread and butter issues of Northern Ireland policy that need to be addressed. Lord Hayne, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that is very uh, helpful and some very positive comments in there. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Okay, that's us back from the conversation. So a lot of interesting stuff there, Paul. Um, particularly struck by the leadership or followership uh, when it comes to leadership here. But he says we're gridlocked and we mightn't realise that we're gridlocked when it comes to local decision making and local political leadership and that people are suffering and we just kind of haven't twigged that yet. I, th I think that is perhaps where I disagree with him. Right. I think if you talk to people, people do know that. And that, in a sense, is why the, the voter turnout isn't better here, you know, because people have developed a sense of, well, they're all the same and we're not getting anywhere and, you know, what's the point? And, and I think there is that sense of frustration. And, you, and, you know, most people we know have had real difficulties with the National Health Service here. We have massive waiting lists, massive waiting times. Mm. You can't even easily get in to see your GP. We don't have enough GPs, especially over in the Northwest. I mean, you know, there is a real crisis in the delivery of some of our services. And while we've had in the last few days the examination results for A-levels and GCSEs, we must not overlook the fact that for a large number of what is essentially working class boys in the non-grammar school sector, they are being very badly served by this system and we have got real problems in terms of very poor educational outcomes and examination outcomes and that leads into low levels of skills, low levels of employability and high levels of people who are either registered unemployed or economically inactive, you know, the real level of unemployment. Yeah. So bringing about that change, bringing about public sector reform is something that obviously that we ask Peter about or you ask Peter about as we've asked everybody. But interesting, Peter talks about the civil service. He says there's a lot of really good people on there, but he says there's also a lot of dead wood, people with a can't-do attitude rather than the can-do attitude. 
and that's something that you've talked about yourself in the past what Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of frustration. I think part of it comes down to the way the Northern Ireland executive works, that you've got uh, ministers from different parties that don't work together sufficiently well. And then you've got the permanent secretaries in the departments that actually tend to follow their ministerial lead and don't work sufficiently well with each other. But I, I personally, it does feel as if we don't have the quality of leadership in the Northern Ireland civil service we need. I mean, it is certainly a positive sign that we've got an incoming uh, head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service who comes from a very different background. We now have a permanent leader who's a woman, which is the first time ever. Uh, we have people from a different background. I think we need much more of that. Uh, there's too much of a sense of an old boys club, you know, guys who went to the same school that know each other who are leading the Northern Ireland Civil Service and we need different types of leaders. And if we had more people from elsewhere, whether that's from Republic or from Great Britain or even from other places, I think that would actually breathe a, a breath of fresh air in. Yeah. Um, talking about hearing other voices, um, like with everybody else, he asked Pierre about citizens' assemblies, and, and he's a fan and thinks that they could really make a difference here. Yeah, and, and specifically points to the fact that, you know, the Good Friday Agreement had the Civic Forum. You know, let's remember the fact that there's bits of the Good Friday Agreement that have got overlooked, that have got sidetracked, side uh, you know, and the things that people expected aren't always being delivered yeah so that's it our final conversation have you enjoyed the series paul because we've had a look at um the civic voice if you like and then put a lot of what was coming out from those conversations to political leaders near the end of the series have you found it useful i found it very interesting and uh, i think we should uh, place on record our thanks to the fact that we got the people we asked for the only Mm. people that uh, declined to be interviewed were Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State, and Julian Smith, uh, who was Secretary of State before Brandon Lewis. And uh, I spoke with Julian uh, with Julian Smith, and he, I think he would have liked to have done it, but felt that if he had done it, it would have been overtly critical of Brandon Lewis. But we did get a Conservative Party voice in at the very beginning, Simon Hall, the, the chair of the Northern Ireland Select Committee. We got the former Labour minister. We got the leaders of all five political parties in Northern Ireland. And actually, I think that's a real achievement. It's also testament to the role of the Hollywood Trust that these leaders of civic society and political society in Northern Ireland did engage with the Hollywood Trust on this. Oh, we're delighted, delighted, obviously. And Paul, delighted too with your role within it and for all the hard work that you put in. I think there were really, really interesting conversations that were driven by yourself. So thanks to you as well. And obviously, the thanks from the organisation from Hollywell must go to all our contributors. Everybody took a significant period of time out. They, they think about the stuff that we were asking them and really give us considered, considered responses, which we really do appreciate. But that's it. The final thanks of the series must always go to the Community Relations Council uh, through their media grant scheme that supported this this process and all 18 uh, podcast episodes. And to Michael Barways, who, God love him, has been pulling together the edits and fair play to him as well. So that's us for this series. Hopefully there'll be a series four. It's a conversation that we really see a value in uh, continuing. And we hope to be back these again soon. All right. Thanks, Paul. Well.